0: Thank you, John. Good morning. Before we begin our sermon this morning, there's a couple of uh, family matters I want to share with you. Uh, As many of you know, um, earlier this week, Nancy Buell passed away. Um, We received that news on Tuesday morning. Uh, Also, uh, over the weekend, uh, Jerry Oshner passed. Um, Anytime that we lose someone in our family, it's it's difficult. it's it's particularly difficult. I remember one of the first Sundays I was here. Nancy was baptized. Uh, this was just you know three years ago. Uh, I also remember uh, how often I would come in and Jerry would be sitting right here on the front row from the first Sunday that I was here. Not the front row, a couple rows back. Uh, actually, kind of where Jim and Janine are. But Jerry would always be there, always intent, always listening. And a couple of uh, a few months ago. Uh, when Jerry wasn't able to come to service anymore I remember feeling just a little a little sad about that a little disappointed for me uh, both of them have been regular fixtures in my time here at Newburgh for many of you Jerry has always been a fixture at Newburgh Uh, Jerry Jerry was our oldest member Uh, Jerry was always encouraging. You could visit with her on Sunday morning, and she always had something, something kind and thoughtful to say. Uh, she was attentive. It was great, because like I knew, if I needed some positive feedback during a sermon, I could look at Jerry and she'd be smiling. Uh, it was just, uh, she was always such an encouraging individual. And so this morning, before we begin our, our sermon, I just want to pray, because we've, we've lost people that are important to us. Uh, as a family, uh, we, we grieve, we mourn. Uh, we, we recognize that their hope was placed in Jesus, and we don't doubt his ability to save either of them. And in fact, we believe that in Christ, they are now at peace, they are at rest, uh, they await the great day of the resurrection. So we mourn for ourselves and our loss, but we don't mourn for them. We don't mourn uh, what, they, what they have received. And so I want to go ahead and I want to pray at this time. Our Father in heaven, we pray for comfort. I pray for Dania and Ken. I, I pray for uh, all of those who have known and loved Jerry for years. God, I pray for, uh, for Nancy's uh, family and her community. And, and God, I pray for us as a church family and our loss of these women. God, they were your children. They are your children. And that makes them our brothers and uh, makes them our sisters, rather, Father. And so we mourn them. We, we grieve our loss, but Father, we rejoice that those who have, have fallen asleep in your Son are only asleep, and that they look forward to the resurrection. And Father, we pray this morning that we can rejoice in the knowledge that those who have placed their faith in you, they have nothing to fear in death. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There will be memorial uh, plans shared with the congregation uh, in the future. I just want to let you know that uh, those haven't been set in place yet, and so we'll let you know as those plans are made. We are continuing a series on the parables of Jesus, and as we've mentioned before, the parables are oftentimes a, a revelation of the kingdom of heaven. In fact in Matthew chapter 13 Jesus essentially tells us what the kingdom of heaven is like, what it values, who rules in the kingdom of heaven, what our role in the kingdom of heaven happens to be. In Luke, when Jesus tells parables, sometimes it's a little less clear what it has to do with the kingdom specifically. Jesus doesn't very often begin by saying the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, shortly after the parable we're covering today, he'll resume that theme. But this morning we're looking at the idea of the barren fig tree, the parable of the barren fig tree. And this is one that I've wrestled with a lot over the years. Uh, It it was actually, coincidentally, a scripture that Don shared with us on Monday night during our uh, elders' meeting, and uh, I told him he'd been looking at my notes, you know, looking ahead a little bit. Um, I really appreciated what he had to share about this particular parable and and the way that it helped me to think about even this sermon this morning. Um, I think that there are a lot of themes that we can unpack from this particular parable because Jesus oftentimes has layered ideas within the parables. And when I read this parable initially, all I could think about was this idea of grace being extended to someone who maybe doesn't necessarily deserve it. If you look at the text of the parable, you have this this fig tree that has not produced for years. I don't know if you've ever grown a fruit tree, but if you miss a season of fruit, it's usually a pretty good sign that that tree is done there's there's not going to be another producing season you might hold out hope for one year we had an apple tree really bad crab apple tree that was in the uh, pasture of my grandparents' home when I was growing up. And I remember going down there and we'd eat the fruit and it was really bad. It was very sour, but we were kids and so we were dumb and we'd eat whatever we could get our hands on, right? My brother and I were young boys and so we'd eat these little sour, nasty, hard as a rock apples. Uh, and I remember the year that it stopped producing, The whole reason that they allowed it to continue to be down there, I think first of all because they got a kick out of watching my brother and I go and eat really bad apples, but they also knew that the the horses and the cows would come and eat these apples off the ground and it was sort of an extra source of just nutrition for the, the livestock that we had. I remember the year it stopped bearing though. I, I remember it pretty clearly because first of all i was disappointed that i couldn't go break another tooth on an apple but i also remember that my grandfather told my grandmother it's going to come down this year and my grandmother kind of pleaded for the tree a little bit Ah, it's not really doing any harm down there and he pointed out that it was it was in a place that he had planned to plant a garden he was going to section off a piece of the pasture put up some fence around it and just plant some corn and plant a few other things and the tree was sort of keeping him for years from using this spot but it was at least useful for the animals and I remember my grandmother saying just don't cut it down you know it's an ugly old crab apple little tree but just don't cut it down yet and I remember the next year when it did not produce fruit again my grandfather said that's enough the ugly tree is gone We're gonna plant a garden. And he did. And I remember that tree coming down. I remember him, you know, kind of rejoicing in removing this eyesore and this this useless waste of space. And so when I read this, I really get that sense that like the gardener and the the owner of this space, they you know, they're having a disagreement. And one of them has this, this uh, just, hey, I need to reclaim my land so that I can plant something else here. It's just taken up soil. It's useless. And the other individual, the gardener himself, says, hey, let's hold out a little bit of hope. Maybe if I give it some special attention, it'll produce. And I think there's something beautiful about that idea of grace, that, you know, I think there have been times in my life where I have been a tree that is not producing anything, where, where I'm just kind of here. But God has shown me grace over the years in times where maybe my, my uh, budding, my fruiting, has been uh, a little bit subpar. And he's allowed me time to be nurtured and fed. And I think I've come out the other side of those times in a much better state than I was before. Hopefully much better for the people around me, uh, productive and useful. And so I've oftentimes read this as an example of God's grace, that the gardener is in fact maybe even Jesus pleading with the Father saying, let me tend to him. And I think that's a beautiful and wonderful idea but I don't know for sure that that's what Jesus means. And and this is one of those parables that Jesus doesn't necessarily explain fully. I want to affirm that first idea. I think it's a scriptural idea that God extends grace to us through the pleading of Jesus Christ on our behalf, saying, look, it might be fruitless now, but I think if it meets the right conditions, the dung or manure, depending on the translation that you have, or the fertilizer, because the NIV is much kinder in its language, if we just fertilize it properly, there might be something good here. And Jesus pleads on our behalf in that way, I believe. But there's another aspect to this, as you read it in the context of the passage, the, the context of the, the scriptures here in, uh, in Luke chapter 13. It begins with this kind of story about uh, the, the crowd, and they're muttering and murmuring about some current going-ons. It says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So Jesus is drawing on some current events. He looks around and and he hears what they're talking about. There's these Galileans, and it's not entirely clear what's happening here. Uh, Pilate mingles their blood with, and then, their sacrifices, and I literally went into the Greek to try and figure out who there was in both of these cases, and it's really not clear if the Galileans' sacrifices were being mingled with their own blood, or if the Romans' sacrifices were being mingled with the blood of the Galileans to kind of profane them. It was very unclear, but clearly something is going on here where someone's offering a sacrifice, and others' blood is being mixed with it. And some people are speculating about what this means for them. Well, this is because they were unrighteous. They were were the wrong sort of people. And Jesus says, really, do you think they were any worse than the rest of the Galileans? Okay, so the Galileans are all those who live along the Sea of Galilee, right? And then he turns his eyes towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He talks about this neighborhood, the, the neighborhood of Siloam, which is near the pool of Siloam. Uh, we're not entirely sure which pool was the pool of Siloam, although we believe it might have actually been the pool that's also called Bethesda. And there's this whole idea here that there had been a tower that was erected and people, in practicing a particular uh, way of being, this, this tower fell on top of them in a place where they really weren't supposed to be. If you're familiar with the, the idea of the pool of Uh, Bethesda, the pool of Siloam, there's this like superstitious stuff going on around there about the stirring up the waters and the healing. And some people might have said, well, they were in the wrong place. They were doing the wrong thing. They deserved what they got. When that tower fell on them, that was exactly what they deserved. They were in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. And Jesus says, oh, you think those Jerusalemites were any worse than the rest of the people in Jerusalem? It's interesting to me what Jesus is doing here. He's covering all of Israel. He's covering the yokels up in Galilee, right? But he's also covering these people in the big metropolis, You think the ones out in the wilds are the bad people? You think the ones here in Jerusalem are righteous? Wait, hold on just a second. Do you really think that any of these people are that much worse than the others? That they deserve the kind of calamities that befall them? After the parable, well, actually, Jesus says this at the end. No, I tell you. No, I tell you. But unless, and now he puts the onus on us, you repent you will all likewise perish. So there's this, you think the yokels are bad or the big city folk are bad, but I'm telling you, unless you repent, you're going to die too. There's sort of this implication that death is coming for all of us, but there's something different for those who repent. After the parable, now, it says Jesus is in a synagogue and a woman who has been disabled. Uh, Some translations say it was a disabling spirit that had caused her to be bent over. Other translations just say that she had been bent over and could not stand up straight. We find out later that it's for 18 years that she'd been experiencing this, and Jesus heals her. Jesus does the thing that Jesus does. And of course, because he's in the synagogue, we have a feeling there's probably a good chance that it's the Sabbath because that's where Jesus seems to be on the Sabbath day, in the synagogues. And when the ruler of the synagogue sees this happen, it says he became indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. There are six days on which work can be done. Come any of those days and we'll heal you. But you know what? Today, today is not a day for healing how cold, how callous. And Jesus responds, he says, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Six days we can work. You want to be healed, you come down here on any of those days. We'll take care of you. Where was that message for this woman over the previous 18 years? You know it's the Sabbath. Come back tomorrow and we'll take care of you. In 18 years, they hadn't found any of those six days to be able to heal this woman. Now, there's certainly an implication here that the ruler of this particular synagogue wouldn't have been able to do the task in the first place, right? Jesus does a lot of things no one else has done up to this point. But there's so much time in this story. There's so much about... The the amount of time that a person has to do something, the inappropriate time to do it, the length of time someone might suffer. I think about this and the, the reflection that Jesus has here is to call this group of people and specifically this ruler of the synagogue a hypocrite. You hypocrite. If you really cared, you'd at least do for her what you'd do for an animal. If you really cared, maybe your rule wouldn't matter so much. It's clear throughout Jesus' ministry that something new is coming. Something new, but something that had always been. It's actually the beautiful thing about the story of the kingdom of heaven in the Gospels is that it is not a new concept. It is not a new thing. The kingdom has always existed. God has always been king. There has always been a desire for the king to rule his people. But for a lot of the people who are hearing Jesus' words for the first time, it is a brand new way of thinking about what the kingdom is to be. It's not new to God. This was certainly his intention all along, but what Jesus ultimately tells this group of people assembled at the synagogue is this, you've practiced your rules so well that you've allowed this woman to suffer for 18 years. When did you find any time in those six days over the last 18 years to heal this woman? Where were your words to her to come on another day in that time? Do you really think that you would have actually done what it is that's required of you at this point at any point in the past if she had come to you on a Tuesday but you're all here today you're all listening to the rabbi preach his lesson you're all here to debate and discuss what it is that the scriptures say about the appropriate way to handle the Sabbath about the appropriate way to handle the Gentiles, about the appropriate way in which to reflect on the Psalms. And for 18 years, this woman has remained unattended to. Sure, there are six other days in the week, but those aren't particularly productive days either, are they? As I read through this chapter and I looked at the the words that surround the story that Jesus tells the parable about the fig tree I think there is a certain level of judgment that Jesus is offering The first is to look at the crowd that's gathered around him and he says you all think that you're going to be spared Every last one of you thinks that the other person is getting what they deserve And you don't deserve what they get. None of you deserve to have a tower fall on you. None of you deserve to have your blood mixed with the sacrifices that are being offered in whatever temple they're being offered in. But I tell you, unless you repent, you're just a barren fig tree. This is, I think, the flow that Jesus is offering to us here. And then it just so happens, isn't it so interesting, the coincidences in Jesus' life, and John Kester's not here to point out there's no such thing as a coincidence in the life of Jesus. Jesus shows up at a synagogue that seems to have served no one particularly well, or at least not served this woman particularly well. And I wonder if this is not an illustrative moment for for Jesus here, that that he's trying to encourage them to say, look, you know, you've done a really good job of keeping the rules, but who's being saved? Who is it that's being able to stand up straight for the first time in their life? Who's spent their entire adulthood bent over? Unable to even look you eye to eye. And maybe you kind of liked it that way. Because if you really had the power to heal her, and you were just waiting for Sunday morning, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, don't you think you would have done it already? But you're not bearing fruit. You're not helping anyone grow. You're not helping them move beyond the place where they're currently at. You're just doing a good job of keeping the rules. I think that this is Jesus' concern with a lot of what he sees in the religious system of his day. It's no wonder that over and over and over again, the Pharisees, the leaders of synagogues, those who sit on the Sanhedrin, their primary issue with Jesus is that he continues to prioritize people over the Sabbath. Go back and read through the New Testament. There, there are a lot of times where they're upset with him for the language that he employs. Calling himself the son of man is a very dangerous thing to do because he's then assuming that they all understand and they do understand very clearly that what he's saying is, look, I'm the one who sits on the throne of heaven, the one that Daniel saw, this revelation that was given to him. I'm that son of man. They get upset with him about that. But the direct conflicts all come from Jesus being a little bit of a, in their minds, rule breaker. He prioritizes people over the tradition of the Sabbath. Now, I want to be clear there is a law of the Sabbath. If you go and you read the Ten Commandments, it's very clear that the Sabbath was intended to be a day of rest, but most importantly, it was to be kept holy. That's what God desired. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And he gives some instructions on, on that day you are to do no work. He doesn't want them going out and tilling their fields. He doesn't want them going out and pulling in their nets. He doesn't want them going out and building a tower that might collapse on some poor people who are practicing the wrong religion. Jesus, on the other hand, seems to interpret this idea of keeping the Sabbath holy as only doing good on the Sabbath. But not good for himself. See, the interesting thing about this whole Sabbath concept is that it it flies in the face of the get-ahead culture. He tells them, do no work. God tells the people not to work on that day. He, in uh, the wilderness, actually even prohibits them from collecting extra most of the week because he doesn't want them to try and build up storehouses for themselves and make themselves wealthier in some way and get ahead, right? In our culture, if he can put in a couple extra hours at the office, and maybe get some overtime, go ahead and do it. I was actually guilty of that this week, so Lorinda Lorinda messaged me and she said, I'm gonna have to work about a half an hour extra today. Uh, Things were a little bit behind, and I jokingly messaged her, yeah, go make those dollar-dollar bills, and uh, I, I don't usually talk that way. I was kind of being facetious, but there was a little part of me that was like, well, maybe that's date night money. A little extra to go into our bank account. I think in some ways, The Sabbath was there to keep man from trying to enrich himself. If you notice, one of the things that God tells the people to do on the Sabbath is to enjoy the fruit of the work of the week before. To enjoy the fruit of their labor, to enjoy their rest. There's actually a lot of provision for enjoyment in the law if you couldn't go to Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice, you were actually supposed to sell what you would have offered, collect money, buy wine and food, and throw a party for your family, essentially, in not just a party for like, hey, look, we're having a party for the sake of a party, but to appreciate what God had provided for you and be worshipful in your celebration toward him. All the other religious systems, if you didn't make it to the temple to offer a sacrifice, you didn't get to throw yourself a party at home. It just meant that your patron God was not going to send rain on your fields later that year. Or your military would be uh, extinguished in a horrible defeat. God offers this beautiful provision. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. But if there's no fruit to enjoy, if there's nothing to celebrate on the Sabbath, if there's no evidence of the work that you've done between Sunday and Saturday, what is there to celebrate? And I think Jesus looks at this synagogue full of people and he says, you all think that you're here being so pious and holy by not lifting a finger for yourself or anyone else. Where is the fruit that you're celebrating today? All I see is a barren fig tree. And God has been patient up to this point. But it's been three years. And he only got one more. I like the first reading a lot better. (laughs) It's a little bit more fun. A little bit more encouraging. God has such gracious love for me that he's going to give me another year. And the second reading is, you know... You're on borrowed time. I'm not going to tell you that either one of those is a wrong reading. I, I genuinely believe both of them are true. I think that when Jesus shares this parable, he wants us to hear both of those thoughts echoed, bouncing off of one another. Hey, God has been very gracious with you. He's given you more time than you could have possibly hoped for. But remember, it's borrowed time. Remember that the love and energy and grace that I have poured into you needs to produce something, or you're just a barren fig tree. And so this morning, I want to give us a few points of application really quick, and then I'm going to wrap up. The first is this. I think that this parable is first and foremost about people. I think that Jesus is encouraging the individuals to consider themselves and I think that the reason that he begins with you you point at the Galileans you point at the Jerusalemites what about you have you repented of being fruitless and are you becoming fruitful the parable follows the exhortation given to the people we have to ask ourselves what is the fruit that I'm bearing Are good things coming from my life? Am I feeding the cows in the pasture or the elementary age boys who are dumb enough to eat the apples that fall off of me? I also think that this is about ministries. The synagogue system was a ministry. It was a replacement for those who could not go and gather in Jerusalem. It was a place for the community to be together, to encourage and edify one another, to build one another up. Oftentimes in the synagogue, someone would express a need and the community would come together and take a collection and they would care for that need. The synagogue system was a place of comfort. The synagogue system was a place for people to make sure that they didn't fall through the cracks. Widows received their portions there orphans received their portions there and if that wasn't happening then there was no point to the synagogue system except for people to come and observe the sabbath the one rule that a lot of people were really good about observing if a ministry is not producing fruit it's time for it to be cut down and i want to encourage you this morning to ask yourself do we have fruit producing ministries? Are we enriching and feeding people around us? That might be true of us individually. You may have your own ministry that is bearing fruit. It may be true of us collectively. We may have ministries that are bearing fruit. But if we're not, the question is, are we living on borrowed time? It's time for us to consider what we do to nurture and build up the tree so that it might bear fruit. And my last thought for us this morning is, sorry, it's not as bleak as it sounds. God is willing that none should perish. He's willing. It is God's desire that no one be cut down that's what he wants God is practical though if God is in fact the one uh, if the father is the one that's come and said we got to cut this tree down it's just taken up soil and Jesus is the gardener says give it one more year and extends grace to us I want to be clear I don't think that the gardener or that the man who came and asked for it to be cut down was wrong for asking for it to be cut down because he gave it three years That's the picture of extended grace. Jesus is the picture of unmerited favor. There is no reason that this tree should be allowed to stay except the pleading of the gardener. It's already been given a lot of grace, a lot of patience, a lot of hope, a lot of expectation. Notice that the the man has come to the tree for three years hoping to find fruit on it. He's a hopeful individual. whatever else has been extended to us, we need to be exceedingly grateful for. Because God's patience is far beyond our own. And the grace and mercy that's been extended through us, to us through Christ is overwhelmingly undeserved. I want to encourage you to remember this morning that God is willing that none should perish. He is willing. So if you look at your life and you feel as though you're not bearing fruit, if our congregation looks within and we say, you know, we need to get some figs on that tree, let's enjoy the unmerited grace that we've received. And let's do something about it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to be fruitful trees. God, the rule would say just cut it all down and throw it into the fire. Let's plant something new. But Father, you are gracious to us. You are kind. You go beyond what the rules say, and you desire for us not to perish, but to flourish. Father, I pray this morning that we are introspective, that we think carefully about the fruit that we are or are not bearing in our lives. And I pray, Father, that as a congregation we consider the fruit that we are or are not bearing. And I pray that we respond because, Father, we don't want to be like the people who have the tower fall on them, but we also don't want to be like the hypocrites that say, hey, we're really all about Sunday. Come some other day and maybe we can do something about it. Help us to be fruitful trees. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and worship at this time, but if you have any need of the church, if we can spend time in prayer with you, if there are ways in which we can bless and encourage you or be fruitful in your life, I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. I would be happy to visit with you and spend some time hearing what it is that you need, Uh, but we're going to continue in our worship at this time.